Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, you're tuned in to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, streaming online or via the podcast. Wherever you are, this is Out of the Box. It's the place where each week I, Mia Hull, sit down with one guest to roll through the stories and songs that have meant something special to them in their life. Before we get into the show today, I'd like to acknowledge that right now I'm coming to you from the FBI Radio studio in so-called Redfern, which means I'm coming to you from unceded land belonging to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'd also like to acknowledge that my guests have travelled from Ewan country. I pay my respects to Gadigal and Walbunja elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today on Out of the Box, I'm joined by two guests. I first learned about them through a YouTube video about a Sydney Harbour cocktail cabinet. It's this huge cabinet. It took 36 years for them to make. And the video about the cabinet is 12 minutes long. I watched the whole thing. It's amazing. You get to see all the details into how the cabinet was made, all the inlays, the painting, all its special features. And through watching this video, I got to learn about its makers as well. Their names are Michael Gill and Chris Payne, and they are artists, craftspeople. They own a wildlife refuge together. They're snake handlers, radio hosts, performers, and they've been in love for 52 years. After watching this video, I felt I had no choice but to get them on out of the box to learn about their stories as individuals, but then also about this epic love story that's brought them to do so many things together. It is such an honour to have them on the show today. Michael and Chris, Thank you so much for joining me. Very welcome, Mia. <laughs> Pleasure to be here. Chris, let's start with you. Your life begins in Mile Lakes. Do you yes. have many memories from that time? Well, um, of course, I was only very little at the time, but I loved the lakes. I loved the paperbark trees. They were my special favourite. Um, and it was a very poor rural area, but um, fishermen and timber getters and all that sort of thing. My father had a um, general store and um, that was sort of in the tea room. So it was a, a nice place to start, but we didn't stay there for too long. We um, some There was some trouble and we moved then to a little town called Bulladila and only visited then back to the Mile Lakes on weekends. To get chillblains again. Yeah, Chris right. used to walk to school barefooted in the winter and she just, your whole body became one big chillblain. I didn't suffered it? a lot. <laughs> and Michael, your childhood looked a bit different to that. Where are you from? We, um, again, you know, working class family. My dad worked in a factory. My mum worked as a cleaner and worked in the pub. And we, it, this was in Mortlake, uh, which. Genteel people call Concord. You know, it's nice to come from Concord, but the reality was Mortlake and Cabarita. And in the old days, it was gasworks, and the Parramatta River was so polluted, I swear you could walk across it, really, without being, you know, too pious. You could mm. still get across. Um, but it was a lovely, it was a lovely upbringing, a lovely working class upbringing. I spent all my childhood on a bicycle with my mates, terrorising the neighbourhood. It's interesting listening to you both talk about your early life because it seems that even from the start, you're quite cognizant to the natural world or noticing things. You talk about the paperbark yes. trees and you talk about the river and obviously working in wildlife rescue has defined a lot of your life. 
especially as a couple. So let's talk about you as a couple. What's your love story? <laughs> well, we it started Keep out. Keep it really... clean, darling. Don't don't say those <laughs> don't say the words in your head. <laughs> we um, met really at the Dremoyne Arts Society when I came down to Sydney to get a job because, of course, in the country there was just nothing. And Michael was going to college and um, we be- we met really at the Dremoyne Arts Society, which was a lovely little um, art society and they had guests uh, because I'd always been interested in art, even though I had had no lessons. It was just a natural thing for me. I had to draw. And um, we both went there independently and... Um, I chased Chris. I was on the bus. I, w- I spent all week at art school and I thought... And the Dremoyne Art Society sponsored me through because I'd exhibited paintings in their exhibitions and they, the poor devils had no taste. They seemed to like what they saw. And they said, we'll put you through your first year in art school. So um, that was lovely. So I, I felt an obligation to go. To, and a lot of very famous artists would go to these meetings once a month and demonstrate or talk about their work, really well-known names. Do a little um, lecture was great for mm. me because I knew nothing. Yeah. And I saw Chris on the bus and uh, couldn't take my eyes off her because she was the cutest thing I'd ever seen in my whole life. When she got up, she got up at my stop. And, and I thought, <laughs> when I stopped looking at her legs, which were very beautiful... Um, I followed her off the bus and I felt a bit like a criminal. Like, I'm stalking this girl. And she was there for the same reason I was, to listen to the, to the guest. And I asked the president, who was a, a good friend, I said, would you, would you please in, would you introduce me to that gorgeous blonde girl over there with <laughs> the legs? And he said, of course, darling, of course. <laughs> it was big Jewish men. <laughs> and, he, and he introduced us and from that, and I froze. And I didn't say a word for the whole bloody night. He sat next to me and said nothing. I didn't even understand that at all. Did you notice him sitting next to you? Oh, yes. <laughs> you did not. Yes, I did. You hated me. You hated me. No. I could tell by the way you looked at me. <laughs> it all comes out. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's interesting that you both ended up there having come from different artistic backgrounds because, yeah, Michael, you were at art school and well I worked at a book publishing house first job that I um, got when I came to Sydney because Mm. I'd always been interested in books I was either going to be a librarian or something like that Um, but the first job I was offered was uh, at a book publishers and I started illustrating um, some of the school books there amazing and yeah later in the show I do want to dig into both of your careers as artists because you have gone so far with your botanical illustrations and both of you with your woodwork and um yeah there's so much to get into there but let's go back to the love story (laughs) so (laughs) you've met at the Dremoyne Art Society maybe things didn't go as planned for you Michael what happened next not for a while but we we finally decided that this was a good thing and we had a tiny weeny little flat in Cremorne in the servants' quarters under a beautiful big, one of the big old stone houses over there because we'd always loved, we used to go for picnics on the Cremorne Reserve and always loved that area. And so we finally, we found this tiny weeny little um, flat, one long room really, wasn't it? 
It was out of this world. It was the perfect. It was very romantic in the corniest possible way. But I I had a couple of aunties who lived in Cremorne and we used to visit when I was a tiny child. And I fell in love with the whole place. I couldn't believe it. And I said, one day I really want to live here. And we were lucky enough to find it. But I I used to walk around Sydney drawing when I was young, a young boy. And I loved Cremorne. So I would spend many weekends up and down drawing on Cremorne and and the people of the reserve were really friendly. I was, They would invite you to lunch. I'd come down and have a look at the drawing and say, oh, that's really quite good. Have you had lunch? And I found myself in a big party of people having a, a barbecue on the reserve and enjoying it. I met a lot of artists that way. It was really, really lovely. This little house, or big house, our little flat underneath, the veranda ran out to the edge of the uh, reserve on the top of a big stone um, platform oh, and there wow. was a giant big fig tree mm. and you could we climbed into the fig, <laughs> top of the fig tree and climbed down to get into the reserve. That's wow. how, we, how we went to the um, ferry each well, day. <laughs> climbing a tree. Yeah. yeah. That take, is take so on brand for you too. <laughs> <laughs> it was great fun and you could, you could climb back up yeah. the fig tree into our backyard. But it was the tiniest. It was one long room and it was the servants' quarters in, and it was the stone part of the foundations of the house. It was such... And I had a little dark room, a little photographic dark room in the bathroom. Mm. So it, it, it served two purposes. It was great, uh, yeah, <laughs> very lovely. It sounds like such a perfect home for you Yes, too. yes. In a few minutes, I want to talk more about your love story and the things that you've achieved together as a couple. But first, you've chosen a song called The Sandy Hollow Line. Why did this make it into your track list today? Well, um, we were very, very influenced by Australian folk music right from the very first um, Sydney festival held down in the Haymarket in the open. It was just, it was a real eye-opener to us. And Steam Shuttle... uh, marvellous band and Andy Saunders particularly has the most amazing voice and we've actually met him several times since then and um, this was a depression song Sandy Hollow Line was a railway started as um, work for the Dole way back then in the depression in the depression and it was never finished because people were just made to work very very hard and you'll see in the song or you'll hear in the song. And my Auntie Elsie used to live just near there, so I knew the area right from early days. <laughs> this is the Sandy Hollow line on Out of the Box and FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Mia Hull. I am joined by Michael Gill and Chris Payne. The choosers of this song, it's performed by Steam Shuttle. <laughs> in silence for this was the period when we lived in the great depression and nothing was cheaper than men and we drove the shovels and swung the picks and cursed the choking dust we'd wives and hungry kids to feed so toil in the heat we must and as the sun rose higher and the heat grew more intense and flies were in their millions you're listening to fbi radio 94.5 digital radio on the podcast or streaming via our website, fbiradio.com. I'm Mia Hull. This is Out of the Box and I am joined by Michael Gill and Chris Payne. They are craftspeople and artists and the choosers of that song, the Sandy Hollow Line, performed by the Steam Shuttle. 
Just before we played that song, we were talking about a little flat that you had in Cremorne where you had to climb down a tree to <laughs> get to the ferry. And I kind of want to get back to your lives in Sydney in the 20s. I In the 20s, in your 20s. <laughs> I'd love to have had a life in Sydney in the 1920s. That was our, our spiritual time, really. We always say we're born too late. That's very, you must have seen it in our faces. I could, I could. But your faces look so young, so it wouldn't oh, make sense you, for you to be in the Yeah, 20s. you've got to say that. God, this girl is so polite. I know. We're not used to being <laughs> to having polite people around us. We are actually in the 70s in this time, and I feel like a love for antiques yes. kind of defines your lives you actually had an antique shop during this time well that sounds a bit too grand it was actually a junk shop a junk shop (laughs) tell tell me about it it was called miss pets we had it with friends uh shared it with friends and it it was it was um on edge of glebe point road where i don't know if it's still there bad manners as a coffee shop used to be i'm not sure if it's still going Mm. Right on the corner. It used to be an old pub originally, and um, it was called Miss Pets. We used to um, we used to give a lot of stuff away. We had a, a policy that we would never buy anything too expensive. So when people walked into the shop, everything was cheap. And Glebe in those days was all pensioners and students going to Sydney Uni. So no one had any money. And so people would walk in the shop, and often you could see that they were on the bones of their backsides... And so, really, a lot of the time, we just, if they wanted something, we gave it away and they walked out happy. And we paid the rent. We never, we never failed to pay the rent, but we made we really no money. made no money, <laughs> but we had a lot of fun. <laughs> and anything good we kept. This is bad policy for a shop. <laughs> yeah. And by that time, we lived in um, North Sydney in a little tiny, weeny little um, um, fisherman's cottage. Very, very run down, but it was just full of all our stuff. We just collected and collected. We were just impassioned about, in those days, Victorian things and Edwardian things, and then gradually started to understand and absolutely adore Art Deco. Mm. Uh, I mean, it goes without saying it's pretty unique for a young couple to have such an investment in antiques and art history. Where do you think that came from? Do you know that I've never... It's true, I've never really looked at it that way. There was a... There was a, a really a groundswell of excitement about old things. I don't... I can't explain why, but we were in the National Trust really from day one. We were so excited and spent a lot of our weekends touring the old the old homesteads and the, the colonial stuff. So we got to know a lot of the early history of Sydney, white history, and also the antiques that were in there. We actually got to know personally many pieces of furniture that sort of changed our lives. They were so magnificent. Mm. And, it, yes, I don't know what re- why we were so keen on old things, both I think of it us. Did, I think it was because of the craft element. We taught ourselves everything. We used to go to the WEA... Um, lectures all the time. We we felt that we needed to educate ourselves. That was the Workers' only... Education Association. Yeah, mm. it was in, I think... Um, Bathurst Street? Bathurst Street. Near it, Town Hall. It was just the most wonderful thing. And we'd go through the, the brochures and say, what are we going to study this time? You know, there were <laughs> 10-week programs, I think. And gradually just taught ourselves, got books and books and books. We used to go to Graham's books and um, 
by Dover Books, they were the most famous, mm. of how to do just about everything. Of course, these days you can go on the internet, but it wasn't around then. And so we'd buy books on obscure things, you know, English smocks and gypsy caravans and <laughs> a myriad of... Um... It sounds like an illness, <laughs> I'm not sure it wasn't an illness. <laughs> later in your lives, you would go on to make your own wooden things too, yes. which we'll talk about later in the show. It sounds like your lives were so perfect in Sydney. It's hard for me to believe that you upped and left for four years. What drove that decision? That was a political decision. <laughs> it was. We um, <clears throat> we were, oh, look, being working people and watching what was happening in society, seeing at first hand what happened to Gough Whitlam's government in 75, the dismissal, it's really hard to downplay the just how savage that was and just how... It was such a, a shock, yeah, I think. It, it shocked a lot of good right-thinking people. When I say right-thinking... I mean, left thinking. <laughs> and it, it was, and we were so angry and we were so fed up. We started saving seriously and decided to leave Australia while, while Malcolm Fraser was Prime Minister. We couldn't bear to live in a, in a right-wing joint, much as we loved the country. And we, so we disappeared and we, we spent four and a half years overseas living in little, little van, travelling in a little van, <laughs> a little bit of work here and there, but living yeah. on savings and having the time of our lives. And that's where Michael did his first carvings. Mm. Um, I think it was the first one was the um, fireplace surround, wasn't it? And, yes, um, beautiful piece of air-dried oak, English oak. Five beautiful pieces, I must say. And Jeez, I got a little a, quiver when I oh, said that. There's was, a woodworker for you. It was very beautiful, <clears throat> and he carved um, the leaves of the trees in the garden of the, the chap that um, commissioned the fireplace surround. You so, were commissioned to yes. do that piece. Yes, I, I, I suppose I'd proven that I could carve wood. I'd had to taught, teach myself. I don't know how that happened. I can't remember. But I was a fairly decent carver by that time. And the, when the commission came in and when it was finished, I looked at it and thought, that's not half a, a bad job. So when we got home, we decided, well, will I do a wood carving course and learn how to carve wood or will we teach it? And we decided to teach it, being arrogant mongrels, especially you, darling. I know, but, you know, you learn as you teach. It, it was fabulous. No right. better way to learn. And we yeah. had a wonder... By then, of course, we had a workshop in Piermont, right next to where the um, Anzac Bridge is. So was starting this woodcarving workshop the reason that you came back to Australia? No, no. No, my mum got ill. We could cheerfully have stayed away as long as we could find work and keep ourselves going, but my mum got crook and we sort of needed to come home and, and sort of look after her because it was, it was serious. And so we did. When we came home, we were on the plane and we really didn't realise how much we missed Australia. We were on the plane and it banked over the Blue Mountains and we looked down into the Gross Valley, we recognised, because we used to do a lot of camping together. The first place we ever went together was the Gross River and mm. we did a beautiful long walk and, when and it was, camped down there. When it was pristine in those days, just glorious. And we looked down as... And we recognised it and we both burst into tears. Aww. We were inconsolable. We? We, we, we turned into bits of blubber. We were sooks. It was unbelievable. And the, and the, the, the flight attendant came over and said, 
are you all right? Like it really looked like we'd had a stroke or, or a seizure of some sort. And we were just, it was pure nostalgia and it was just pouring out of us. Yeah. And from that moment on, we realised that what we loved about home was nature, was Australia. Um, now, I get a bit sooky talking yeah. about it, I'm sorry. But no, we, we realised that it meant a lot to us. So the first thing we did when we got home was join the Wilderness Society. That was just when the beginning of all of the um, no dams, you know, Franklin River mm. was going to be dammed and we threw ourselves into that completely. Uh, we didn't go to Tasmania, but we were support up here mm. for the no dams. And it was just another part of our characters that we didn't really know was there. It just popped out of us on that plane and it, it gave us a, a very strong direction in yes. life at that time. The next song you've chosen was written and performed by Paul Simon. It's called Late in the Evening. Before this show, it was so hard to make you stop talking about this song. It's so important <laughs> to you, it seems. Uh. Um, Michael, I'll throw it to you. Why did it make it into your track list today? You know how mu some music can have a visceral effect on you and you you sometimes fail to ask yourself, what is so fabulous about Why am I having this gut, this wonderful gut reaction to this music? Intellectually, I know it's a song about a young man finding his feet in a band, realising he can play an instrument beautifully, realising he has skills as a songmaker. It's... Forgive me, Paulie, if you're listening, but I think Paul Simon wrote an autobiographical song there. I know everyone wants to believe that everyone's literary output is autobiographical, but I think it's true in this case. And it begins, as you'll hear, with Paul, with Paul Simon lying in a cot as a, as a baby, listening to the sounds of the world around him and hearing his mother laugh, in his words, the way some ladies do. And... The first time I heard that song, I thought, I don't believe what a beautiful line that is. The writing of it was staggering. Uh, people don't know, Paul Simon actually did a songwriting workshop. <laughs> he learned how to write songs um, and then became the master. Mm. So it's a, it's a lovely life of... Oh, what a terrible thing to say, life of... It is a song full of life and sincerity and the joy of being alive and making music. It just got me. Chris, is there anything you'd like to add to that? <laughs> well, I think also because Michael's mother did have a lovely laugh, it may have been a little connection through to your mother. And a beautiful singing voice. Yes. Beautiful singing voice. And I went on to learn the harmonica because I was so inspired by that particular song. This is Late in the Evening, written and performed by Paul Simon on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. This funky bar and I stepped outside and smoked myself a J And when I come back to the room Everybody just seemed to move And I turned my amp up loud And I began to play And it was late in the evening And I blew that room away Paul Simon it was late in the evening on FBI Radio 94.5. You are listening to Out of the Box. And today I am joined by Michael Gill and Chris Payne, who chose that song. Chris and Michael are snake handlers, performers, radio presenters, 
craftspeople, artists, among many other things. And if you were tuning in earlier, you would have heard Chris talking about her time as a botanical illustrator. I, I want to dig further into that, Chris, because you actually did some work for the CSIRO. Yes, that's as right. A self-taught artist. How, how did you arrive there? It really was a most beautiful combination because I could draw but it's a specific, specialised thing, a botanical illustration. You've got to be absolutely measurable, exact. It's like scientific the, illustration, the, isn't the it? The length of the hairs on the stem of a <laughs> plant mm. have to be measured and reproduced at a different scale. But the botanist, whichever one I was drawing for at the time... This was for the floor of New South Wales. People may know the big four-volume floor of New South Wales where every plant in New South Wales was illustrated, a part thereof. So I had to do a drawing initially in pencil and then have it um, checked by each botanist, whichever family, you know, they were uh, I was drawing for, and then they would say, you know, you need to emphasise the, the bud shape a little more because I was mostly working from dried specimens, um, which is, you know, a sad state compared to a, mm. a beautiful, you know, fresh flower. And uh, working with the botanist, they would be so exact, it made me exact. So it just had to do it that way. And then once it's all corrected, then I did the final black and white drawing. So really, it, it was just a process. You developed it. You developed it with the help of very fussy scientists. It, which it's course, a wonderful thing. They've got to be fussy because, you know, mm. species are often very close. And mm. to, to know the difference, you, it's often, as I say, the length of the hairs on the stem. Mm. But you had it inside you, sweetheart. You didn't... You, you, you understood from the beginning exactly what was needed and you had those skills to do exactly what a botanist needed. And it, yeah, as Chris says, it, it has to be perfect. You can't just toss off rubbish. And botanical illustrators who could do that were very hard to find. Art schools do not turn out fine illustrators like that who can, who can be really erudite when it comes to doing perfect work. And really I was just um, always very, very observant even as a child in my into minute things one of the places I had for my own little place was inside a bush I would crawl into this bush and I now know that it was um uh, <laughs> Melaleuca tinifolia. <laughs> I didn't know it then. I used to just call it my my fuzzy pink bush. <laughs> so I was always really observant about the minutia of life. And you're still a practising artist now, Chris? Yes, mostly now I'm doing um, maps, illustrated maps for mm. um, various groups, mm. illustrated with, you know, the plants and animals uh, in an area. And if you make art in your own time for fun, do you find that you are bringing that kind of meticulous attitude to Always, your practice? Always, yes. I've just done a, a drawing, a coloured drawing for Michael for his birthday of a eastern yellow robin, which is his favourite bird. So. Oh, gorgeous little creature. I want one, to be <laughs> honest. I don't think I'm allowed to own one, but I want, I'll want. i just give it a little kiss and let it go. <laughs> well, you two have lots of animals as um, wildlife rescuers, which yes. we'll talk about later in the show. But, I mean, Michael, let's talk about your artistic practice. Are you as meticulous as Chris? 
I have to say I am. Some people would say, use the word constipated. I failed woodwork at school, horribly, at high school, because I don't know about... Because one of my teachers only had three fingers on one hand. And that really put the wind up me. But I was just rotten at woodwork. I just... I was hopeless at metalwork as well, and I failed. But later on, the first vehicle Chris and I... When Chris and I got together, the first vehicle we bought, of course... Corny though it might sound, it was a combi, a Volkswagen mm-hmm. combi van. Everyone, all young people had a combi van. And we couldn't afford to have it built into a caravan. We wanted to travel a lot in it in our in weekends and holidays. So I my uncle gave me the Reader's Digest book of things to make and do or how to do everything in the work. And I, I read it from cover to cover. I thought, I can do this, I can build it. And we I did. I built the first little caravan in the combi. And that was the first woodwork I ever did. My father was used to make picture frames as well. And I watched these very simple but difficult to make joints and thought, and he taught me how to do it. And that was it. That was the beginning of, you know, a ghastly career in fine cabinet making. I think being poor makes you very inventive. Um, If you want something, well, this was back then, if you didn't have the money to buy it, you had to work out how to make it. And I used to make all our clothes too. Really? Mm. <laughs> I think we fell in love with decoration. Yes, I think so. Really, in a time when the world was going for simplicity, the modernist movement that really became very popular, say, after the First World War, really just annoys the hell out of it. We've had enough of it. It's been <laughs> over 100 years and I've had enough of modernism mm. and decoration thumbs its nose at, at the idea of modernism and that pleases us yes that's right (laughs) and so when you teach workshops you're teaching decorative craft yes that's right what an incredible journey for you to be a self-taught illustrator and for you to have failed woodwork and then it's embarrassing isn't it well I, i just mean to then you know spend your careers teaching other people and then also michael for you to spend 14 years teaching at anu as well, it, it's amazing, and I would love to spend this whole show talking about your artistic practice, but you are so much more than just craftspeople. Uh, so I want to talk about your life as radio presenters now. This call sign, FBI Radio 94.5, you're actually familiar with those numbers through an old station that you They were our numbers at. first. Yeah, we stole them from you. <laughs> Chris, tell me about your time as a radio host. Well, uh, we just saw a sign in Braidwood that was, um, is anybody interested? We were thinking of starting a radio station. We thought, yes, we could do that. And we went along and, of course, it was a lot of uh, selling of eggs and... <laughs> volunteering until we had enough money. Fundraising. Fundraising. And then... Selling uh, eggs to start a new radio station. Yes, that's right. Uh, And Michael did all of the signage for free, beautiful uh, logo of two wallabies. Mm. And uh, we called it the barbed wireless because it was the old-fashioned word for radio was wireless. Mm. And um, because it's being in the country... There's a lot of barbed wire about. <laughs> and, and we were there on the very first day of broadcast, the very first day. We had no idea what we were doing, didn't know how to use a microphone. No training again. No, nothing, <laughs> completely raw. And we got on with the other poor devils who had put their hands up to be on the first day. And we all did quite well. And no we one had, was arrested. We had so much fun. We thought, oh, love this. <laughs> you know, we were entertaining each other. And if other people were listening... That was good. <laughs> what drew you to radio? 
Well, we'd always listened to radio all our lives in work in our workshop. We always had the radio on in Sydney, mm. and um, we're crazy about radio. We just love it. Always yeah. have been. Yeah. But in Canberra, in Canberra, I was asked at one stage to go into the ABC studios when James Valentine did the afternoon program, and he needed someone to talk about furniture restoration for twenty minutes in an afternoon. It's the most boring subject in the on the face no, of the it's earth. Not. It's awful. <laughs> Everybody's got white rings on their coffee table. That was the main question. That's right. Every every week, you know, how seventeen you people would ring up and say, "You know, my best serving tray's got white rings." Oh, how do I fix? So it, it quickly turned into a comedy program and a com- and a program about Hungarian cooking. That's true. <laughs> and you hosted a show on the Braidwood Community Radio Station as well. It was called Gloomy Sunday because it was on Saturday and it wasn't gloomy. <laughs> I used course. to say, if you don't understand that, if it doesn't make sense, you're listening. <laughs> to the wrong show. But we did three hours every Saturday morning for nine and a half years and we missed two programs in that nine and a half years only. Yep. That includes New Year and, oh, yeah. and Christmas. And one one of those times was to learn how to uh, rescue snakes and the other one was for um, a historical walk around the gold fields <laughs> in, ba- in Braidwood. Amazing. Well, it's no wonder that you've been so good at programming the songs for this show. You've been doing it for nine years, <laughs> at least. Uh, so let's go into the one of the songs that you've programmed for Out of the Box. It's by the Spooky Men's Chorale. Why did you pick this one? I think because, um, look, choirs, choirs have always been something we've loved an awful lot. And they there is a lot of very ordinary choirs about, but there used to be... <laughs> There used to be one called the Choir at the Gates of Salvation. That you was one that? we used to go to their concerts. It was fabulous. And they did a good bit of gospel music. And Chris and I are not exactly very pious people. In fact, I think we might be arch-pagans. I think so. Really. And quite proud of it. But we still enjoy that music so much. And I've always wanted to be in a men's choir. I was desperate. I could never find one. And the Spooky Men's Chorale not only is a men's choir with unbelievable voices, but full of fun. The bloke who runs it, and I'm embarrassed to say I've forgotten his name, the man who runs it writes a lot of very, very good, fun, humorous songs. And I think he's written this one. I think he has. (laughs) And we just fell in love with them and we were invited to attend a couple of their CD recording sessions. And they were some of the best fun you can have in a recording studio. And these people, these men are mad and they get together when they can because they live all around Australia. And the only thing they've got in common is black a black uniform, they all wear different black and black hats. <laughs> That's all you require, and a good voice. Oh, different hats. Each one has a different hat, sort of hat. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Chris, what was involved in doing the CD recording? Oh, well, we were just really just audience, and they wanted us to, um, you know, vocalise and cheer. and <laughs> so, so that it was great background noise for each of the songs. <laughs> Don't Stand Between a Man and His Tools is the name of the song chosen by Chris Payne and Michael Gill on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. This is the Spooky Men's Chorale. Don't stand between a man and his tools. Don't write the species off as hardware-loving fools. Don't stand between a man and his tools. You never know where you might need one. You never know when you might need one. You never know when you might need one. You never know when you might. Ooh. Do, do, do. 
was Spooky Man's Chorale on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. The song, was co- the song was called Don't Stand Between a Man and His Tools. I'm Mia Hull. I'm joined by Chris Payne and Michael Gill. And earlier in the show, we talked about your homecoming from your time living abroad. And yes. it sounded like this really cathartic moment of realising how much the Australian climate meant to you and how yes. much you wanted to preserve and protect it. So... Let's talk about that now, because for the last 24 years, you've lived on a wildlife refuge. That's right. We declared it um, really to save it from... uh, There was a terrible lot of kangaroo shooters around, and we just thought we've got to have a safe space. Everywhere was just open slather, and we had to find a little corner for some refuge for the animals. Whereabouts is this refuge? This is down uh, south of Braidwood, which is between Canberra and um, Batemans Bay on the southern uh, tablelands. And where were you in life when you made the decision to establish this place? What brought you out there? Well, um, We were in Canberra at the time, me at the our, ANU, Chris at the CSIRO. Mm, and we had a house uh, there and um, the, it was sold from under us. We had to make a decision whether do we stay on in Canberra or do we... Um, because we'd bought our land, just a just a big block of land, for retirement on, and we thought, well, we could just go now. Mm. It seemed like the easiest thing to do, and um, so we proceeded to pack everything, single thing in, ex- as well as half of a harbour bridge ca- cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to build the workshop. There was no, there was only a shed on the block. So we built the workshop and moved got the, everything uh, out there. Got the bridge out of storage yep. and. Um, Went at it. Mm, yeah, that's and funny. So, you say it's the easiest thing to do. It sounds like the hardest thing to do. What a <laughs> huge undertaking! Tell me about your workshop. Well, it's a big tin shed, <laughs> ugly on the outside, gorgeous on the inside. We've... Every bit of it came from the tip, <laughs> uh, from we were... three or four tips in our area. We we felled some old yellow box trees that were ring-barked about 70 years ago. So they'd been standing dead for 70 years ago. And that wood is like iron. And they were the posts that we put in and just clad it in uh, corrugated iron, which we had to sort of... um, Scrounge. (laughs) Scrounge from the tip. (laughs) And it doesn't look very grand on the outside, but gorgeous on the inside because we've we've got all our tools up on the uh, walls and um, artwork and, yeah, it's lined and cosy. And so Chris has half the workshop as a studio where she draws and paints. I have the other half for for furniture making. And we have a little skillion workshop, a big skillion workshop, where all the machinery is outside. So if I have to make dust, I go outside and mm. close the windows and, and keep the inside nice and clean. But it's it's been paradise. We can make as much noise as we want with the machinery out there because our closest neighbour is what... Four and a half billion light years <laughs> from where we are. Something like that. I'll give or take a light year. We only have solar power. We, we have nothing more than solar power and batteries. So all our, all our electricity comes out of the sky. And a little gener- a diesel generator for when we need to use big machinery. Um, and in the winter for warmth, we have a um, slow combustion stove, which was given to us, full of rats. It was in <laughs> about 50 pieces. We had to put it together like a jigsaw puzzle, Mm. um, cleaned it all up and it's been wonderful for cooking on in the winter as well as warming the place up. And he's called Mr Clever, which is short for Mr Clever on the level. Mr On the Level, which is a 
a euphemism for the devil because he's hot. It's very hot. And when you open the, when you open the door, flames come out. <laughs> so Mr. Clever is, saves our lives in winter. We name everything. <laughs> yes. This is one big part of our lives. I have at least 400 nicknames for Chris. <laughs> so you've got this workshop out here at the Alonco Wildlife Refuge. That's right. It is a wildlife refuge. You spend time saving animals. What's that like? And weeding. <laughs> That's a big part of it. Um, rescuing animals can be wonderful and tragic. Mm. Uh, where we rescue them and they live, it's marvellous, like the snakes. We go to people's houses if there's a snake under the fridge and there's often a snake <laughs> under the fridge. We can successfully get those out. But um, sadly, of course, the mange is very bad on a lot of the wombats and a lot of kangaroos get struck by cars on the road but they're not dead, and that is the worst job to have to do to euthanise them. Mm. But somebody's got, somebody's got to do it, and um, we've said, all right, we can do this. Our local group is called NARG, Nature, uh, Natural... No. Native, Native Animal, Animal Rescue Group. Rescue, yeah. Mm. Mm. And um, we do the, all of this work, mm. you know, volunteer for them. We're jumping into a song now called You're Bound to Look Like a Monkey When You Grow Old. Both of you seemed so excited about this song being played on the show today. You've well, only got to look at my face <laughs> and have a look at this thing it's in front of you. It's happening to right? us. It's, we never thought it would, but yes, you are bound to look like a monkey when you grow old, especially me. And this was a wonderful, fun, comic song uh, written in the 20s and everybody adored it then and, and uh, there are lots and lots of recordings by lots of groups and um, it'll make you laugh. It's fabulous dance music from the 20s at a time that people began to call the Jazz Age, just at the end of the First World War when the, the world was truly traumatised and people were desperate for fun. And dance music, especially novelty songs, which you could dance to, were worth their weight in gold. <laughs> You're bound to look like a monkey when you grow old. This song was chosen by Michael Gill and Chris Payne and it was performed by Bob Crosby and his Bobcats in the 1920s. I can tell by your face you belong to the monkey race. You're bound to look like a monkey when you grow old. 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 You're bound to look like a monkey when you grow I can tell by your hands that you have monkey glands You're bound to look like a monkey when you grow When you grow When you grow Performed by Bob Crosby and his Bobcats. It's a 1920s recording on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. The song was called You're Bound to Look Like a Monkey When You Grow Old. I'm Mia Hull. I'm joined by the people who chose that song, Michael Gill and Chris Payne, who are radio hosts, snake rescuers, wildlife refuge havers. Cabinet makers, artists, the list goes on. And Old <laughs> monkeys. <laughs> those are your words, not mine. <laughs> I mean, before we jumped into this show, you kind of pointed to maybe having the secret to a happy life. Well, it's made our life happy. Whether anyone will do it or not, I don't know. We've mentioned it to a lot of people. You're not going to say ginseng, no, darling? No, or... nothing so pure as that. Thank you. <laughs> 
Every day we read to each other. We, we have our own bed book, but we always have a mutual a book that we share. Whoever's doing a boring job, like sharpening a chainsaw. Making breakfast. Making breakfast or making... Not that that's boring, but if there's one person to do a job, the other one will read a chapter from our current book. We nearly always have a fun book, but not always, but but a lot of the time. And we it gives us a chance to share a story, to stop, look up words in the dictionary. We always have a dictionary right next to us, always self-educating. And it also helps us to perfect our accents. We like, love doing the accents. Yeah, yeah. So it's an it's an opportunity to perform for one another. I think this is the key. We really enjoy performing for one another's pleasure. And so both of us get a chance to read out loud every single day. And when we had our radio show, we used to have a, a book reading in the last half hour. And Chris would do the narration and I would do all of the dialogue. And so I had to brush up on all the accents. And there's millions of them. And some of, the, some of them I do quite well and some are crap. How long have you two been together for? Wow. Are you Fif- going to tell the two, truth? 52 years. And do you think that reading to each other is the secret to that? Well, certainly helps. It's been hell. <laughs> uh, in all honesty, it's been hell. Every moment of it has been so horrible. It's why we dislike one another so much at this point, isn't yeah, it, sweetheart? Yeah, I suppose so. Since 12 o'clock today, we've been talking through the stories of both of your lives and your lives as a couple. And the narrative that I've heard, at least, is about two people who have ideas and follow through on them or have interests and make those interests their passions and learn everything there is about them, which is so incredible to me. When you look back on your lives, what do you feel the most proud of? Well... One another. Yeah. Really, I don't want to be too corny and and soppy about this, but really it is a story of two people joined at the hip and I have no idea what I would have done without Chris in my life. Without Same for me, really. Yeah, yeah I, I can't picture it. We've helped each other with everything all the way through. What we've done, you know, that's a very interesting question. I have never really asked myself that question. It's, a, it's fabulous. And to, honest, to honestly answer it, I think we've always told ourselves to do something well, you need to be committed to it. You really have to care. You don't just pick something that will make you a bit of money. Well, you should, but we don't. Um, But also, we have also always said to one another, if we commit ourselves to something, we have to love it, feel very strongly about it, and do it really, really well. Make sure that we train ourselves and we keep keep advancing and keep um, improving what we do until it's the best we possibly can. And I think that's that keeps us getting up in the morning right now as well as the last 52 years. What does the future hold for you? Ah, we're, go- we're going to become uh, gypsies, geriatric g- gypsies we've decided to call ourselves and uh, go travelling. We are going to build um, a beautiful home on wheels, again in an Art Deco style, and mm. I'm going to put a lot of... All your skills. What? like um, A lot of skills into it. I nearly used the word wank. It's got no, to be a... No, no, no. Swank. That's what I swank. meant. <laughs> it's going to be very swanky. Um, and we're going to travel all around Australia in that. But we're, 
with one big difference from the first time we travelled, it will also be a travelling workshop. So we will live and work every day in that home on wheels um, because that keeps us going. Yeah, we're addicted to making beautiful things, really. I'll put a link to the slideshow that you made about that Sydney Harbour cocktail cabinet. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, on the program's page on fbiradio.com because it actually is the reason that I found you two was through watching that video and I was like, who are these people? I need to meet them. <laughs> and, oh, my gosh, that's the happiest accidental stumbling across a slideshow that's ever happened to me in my life. Oh, this is the first interview I've done that's made me tear up a little bit from joy. So. Wow, that is gorgeous. <laughs> thank you so much for making the time to come all the way to Sydney to do this interview with me. I feel so, so privileged to have had you on Out of the Box. Our pleasure. The last song that we're going to play on the show today is by Steve Martin and his Steep Canyon Rangers. It's called Atheists Don't Have No Songs. Why'd you pick this one? Ah, it's us, really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Arch Atheists and really, you might be that little bit wrong. I think Atheists have all the best songs. Yeah. Chosen by artists and craftspeople, Michael Gill and Chris Payne. It's Atheists Don't Have No Songs by Steve Martin and Steep and the Steep and his Steep Canyon Rangers. This has been Out of the Box. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you did want to listen back to this episode, you can do that on the programs page on fbiradio.com. I'll also have a full list of songs that Chris and Michael brought to the show and links to some of the things we've spoken about, including the famous Sydney Harbour cocktail cabinet. You can also listen back to this episode via the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Do stick around. Lunch is right around the corner. FBI Radio. Christians have, Christians have their hymns and pages. Hymns and pages. Habanagilas for the Jews. For the Jews. Baptists have the rock of ages. Rock of ages. Atheists just sing the blues. <laughs>